Welcome to Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This podcast series is compiled from Dr. Whitney's university class entitled Justifying Beliefs. The thesis of this class is that we all hold beliefs, and no matter what they are or how deeply we adhere to them, we owe it to ourselves to apply rational testing of our beliefs in order to aim to justify them. This class takes us along that journey, perhaps for the first time or more deeply. For further insights and materials mentioned in this series, please refer to the resource page on Facebook entitled Thinking with Dr. Barry Whitney. This argument's unimpressive because we have a whole world of naturalistic disciplines telling us that moral law can simply be there. That's basically what they say. It's just there. The moral law just arrived. I want to know why it's there. I want to know how it's different from cultural creations and anthropology and sociology because it's different. Cultural laws are not moral laws. We can decide that these cultural laws are moral, the moral laws for our society, but we know that these laws have no other source than what's good for us and what's bad for us. That's cultural. That's anthropology. That has nothing to do with theology, which is saying that you can't make a good argument I'd like to see the details. I've seen, I've seen lots of these arguments, but especially from evolutionary theory, saying that certain things emerge, but they don't tell why they emerge, and they don't make a case that they can emerge. Um, there are lots of people out there, lots of major scientists, who are starting to revolt against this naturalistic understanding and try to widen the horizon, because the minute you limit yourself to a non-theistic uh, world, um, there's, like I say, there's a price to pay and the options seem to be pretty limited. There's something wrong with a naturalistic world. I think even naturalists understand that. I think that's why there's a New Age spirituality, and postmodernism understands that, attacking naturalism, uh, saying that its use of reason is, is over, overestimated, that it couldn't, it doesn't have reasons for all of these things. If you really believe that there is no God, um, Nihilists are people who believe that there's absolutely no meaning left. Um, it's, a, it's an impossible position to hold because you'd have to just lie in bed all day. Uh, like it, it, there's nothing. They're the ones who make the argument, uh, like Woody Allen movies and, and some others. But I mean, he, he, he's a nihilist, but Nicolas Cage's music, and there's, there's all kinds of examples of, of just meaningless stuff, uh, Beckett's plays. And nihilism is a philosophy out there which tells us that naturalism is a failed enterprise. And I think it makes some pretty impressive arguments that life without God is a very different world than life with God. Bottom line, this moral proof says it's more, it's more likely that there's a God to explain our ethical feelings, our moral obligations, than it is that we feel these obligations because some person claims they're true, or some society claims they're true, or some group claims they're true, or, or that we just discovered them, but we have no reason why they exist. It just sounds like sociology to, to, to me. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much what we've done. That's what the university does. Let's exclude God and try to describe human beings purely naturalistically. And what we end up with is uh, there's no moral basis. And uh, the free will is an, un, is an untouched, untouched domain. But if you ever take a course in philosophy of mind or the psychology of mind, my guess is they'd be honest there and say, our, our studies show that the brain chemicals basically determine everything and that you and I have no freedom at all. Now, I don't believe that. Like, like 
I don't believe that we're completely determined by physics and chemistry because I think there's another actor involved. What science and what this culture seems to be studying in the universities are the secondary causes, you know, the physical causes of things, but they're leaving out the primary cause, which is the, the spiritual, what, what God is doing. That's been an old Catholic uh, uh, division for centuries. Some people don't think it works, but it, it's, if you believe in God, that might be part of the answer, that God is the primary cause. God's involved in every event. But science and naturalism just study the physical events. They don't see the spirit behind it. They don't see God's role because God's excluded from that domain. It's not an object to be studied in science. It's, it's that simple. We live in a culture of relativism and subjectivism in ethics. The moral proof is in trouble. That people don't believe in an objective moral law from God. Even if they believe in God, they don't seem to believe in this moral law. I guess it's because it's so hard to explain. Um, why are we going through this whole ritual of trying to show that there's rational reasons for belief when the culture just thinks that belief is all uh, either relative to what the person thinks and prefers or, or ethically the same thing? Um, so he's got to argue against two major cultural positions. One is skepticism. There's a lot of that, which is the naturalistic, no-God perspective. He has four or five decent arguments against universal skepticism, why that is self-refuting and doesn't really make sense. He also argues against religious skepticism, saying, well, maybe we can know some things, but we certainly can't know anything for sure to justify religious beliefs. I want you to see that you can refute that. This culture, as, a, as in general, says you can't do what we're trying to do in this class. You can't justify religious beliefs. It's very skeptical about everything, but especially about religious beliefs. So that's the first couple of sections in this chapter where he talks about um, universal skepticism and religious skepticism. How do you answer it? Um, universal subjectivism, which means everything is relative to the subject. We make up our own Shangri-La, there's this solution to all of our problems that, that this culture seems to think. That there are problems with universal relativism, moral relativism, and, and its shortcomings. That our moral feelings are just cultural creations, that all values are made up by us and cultures. We have two cultural problems which count against justifying religious belief. Skepticism, saying that we can't justify anything, especially religion, and relativism, subjectivism, in ethics, and in religion. If, if religion is just all made up, if ethics is just all made up, the main religious belief, of course, is belief in God. If there's no God, there's no point in talking about anything else, quite frankly, from a theistic point of view. It doesn't matter if there's life after death. It would be meaningless. There couldn't be if there wasn't a God. Um, and, and, and it wouldn't matter what the Bible says. So. I'm going to show you what the teleological argument for God is, what the cosmological argument for God is, really briefly. I have it on overheads, and it's very simple at this brief, quick level. It's very complicated, of course, when you do it at a scholar's level, but that's not our concern. I just want to expose you to the fact that belief in God has been justified with the moral proof um, that's usually considered the most controversial and the weakest. I think it's important. Um, on the other hand, the ones we're going to look at today are, are considered far more uh, 
traditional, the moral proof is often ignored by people. I think our culture needs the moral proof, so I'm going to present it differently today than I did last time, give you another crack at that, because it is important. Christian theism has to have some arguments for the Bible being trustworthy. Most people don't have a clue what they are, and most Christians don't even know. And so, so much misunderstanding. Christians, for instance, like Muslims with the Quran, Christians don't just assume the Bible is true because they're Christians, and of course it's true. They need reasons. I want to tell you, for instance, that there are... Now, this is my version. Other people have different versions. I'm going to say right now there are three ways of justifying religious belief. Three types of apologetics, which is, you know, the shortcut version of apologetics, as you know, is just justifying religious beliefs. The traditional way, the way we'll probably use today when we look at cosmological and teleological arguments, the traditional way is, is called classical apologetics. Classical. Um, it's the majority view. There are, there's competition now because there's some shortcomings to this, and that's what I want to point out. Some of you may feel the shortcomings, and I just want to acknowledge that your feelings are valid. Um, the classical apologetics, the traditional classical way to justify religious beliefs is a two-step process. The first thing that's done is to try to prove with logic and evidence God's existence. Just prove it rationally. And hence we have these so-called theistic proofs, arguments for God's existence. It's a, it's a, I think the, the, uh, the value of this is that if you're a theist, uh, an atheist, a skeptic, we all use logic or we should all use logic. That's the common ground. So, Rather than assuming the Bible is true and God exists, this one is saying, let's use our minds and debate. Let's see what the logical, rational evidence is for God. So that's what classical, theist, uh, uh, classical apologetics has always done. It starts with rational proofs for God's existence. These are supposedly, like I say, neutral. And they are. I mean, theists and atheists both know these proofs. Atheists, as we'll see next term, I'm not, we don't have time for it in this class, but, I mean, atheists have disproofs and theists have proofs and there's quite a debate about all of these things. Um, I, I, I don't fear for the theists, but I just want you to know that it's common ground. Anyone can use logic. Anyone can look at the evidence. Anyone can use their minds and come to conclusions about the evidence. So that's what we'll, we'll look at in most of these theistic proofs. The second step for a, for a Christian classical theist trying to justify beliefs, the first thing they do is to argue for God's existence. The second thing they do, they argue um, for the Bible's trustworthiness using scientific evidence like archaeology, um, historical evidence like, you know, what's the, what's the likelihood that, that, that these events were reported accurately? Are, they, are there eyewitness accounts? It's, it's, that's secondary stuff. The first thing you do is establish God exists in a very neutral way, and it doesn't seem to offend anybody. It's just basically an argument about, let's look at the evidence for and against God and come to some kind of a conclusion. The second thing, though, is to try to, for a Christian, to try to prove that the Bible exists. Now, I suppose with the Muslim, you could say, although they don't, uh, you could say that they would first prove 
you know, Allah exists, and then they would try to prove that the Quran is, is, is viable, trustworthy. That's such a standard. It makes sense. The problem with this is, the problem with this classical approach is that it seems to be intellectual, over-intellectual. It stresses reason and logic. And a lot of you know that your religious beliefs are based on feeling and, and, and experience of God. It's an inner faith that, that you probably never had to use logic to worry about. I'm telling you in this class, I think it's a good idea to, you know, if you have that inner faith to assess it with logic and rationality. If it's true, it should stand the test. But that in the minds of a lot of people, um, because of this 20th century stress on feeling and religious experience, and we're moving away in this culture in general against uh, doctrine and intellect. Um, a lot of people want more feeling in their apologetics and their justifying belief. Now, I think we have to be careful with that, but that is the major criticism of what we're doing. And if you felt that, saying that, I believe in God, I've always believed in God, I don't really need all of these proofs. I understand what you're saying. My point is that classical apologetics, though, does have a, 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 a plus. It does have a, a purpose. It's trying to assure you if, if your feelings about God and your faith is valid, if it's true, that it should withstand um, rational investigation. If it can't withstand rational investigation, and that doesn't mean just science. That means evidences and, and, and whether there's inconsistencies and logical contradictions and presuppositions that can't be verified and they're all wacky and the lack of coherence. There's all kinds of things that could be wrong with your belief when you start analyzing it. And, and I think if your belief is true, it should withstand the, an, the, the analysis. It's the same thing like studying music. You love the music. Why do you have to study it? Well, to love it more, to appreciate the depth of it. You love the poetry. Why do you have to pull it apart? You appreciate it more when you understand it at a deeper level. And I think it's the same with religious belief. So there shouldn't be anything wrong with classical apologetics trying to prove the God you already believe in, a lot of you. What it's doing is assuring you that your belief is justifiable. And I think that's a good thing. Now, there's another kind of apologetics, though, that's just arisen in this century. A lot of people think this is a lot, uh, a lot easier to do, that there's too much stress on logic and proving God's existence. Quite frankly, you're going to see, if you don't already feel it, the arguments for God's existence, these so-called proofs for God's existence, are always contentious. There's always something that, I mean, they, that, that, that's inconclusive about them. They're, they're powerful arguments. They've been around for 2,500 years, quite frankly, since Aristotle, to Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. They've been around a long time. A lot of people have tried to make them better and better. Um, but these, these are very, very rational arguments that are, they, they don't conclusively prove God exists. So the, the second type of apologetics doesn't want to start or even end with arguments for God's existence because it thinks that these arguments really, not only are they not acknowledging that, that most of us start with faith, not with these rational arguments, but these rational arguments for God's existence just seem to be too, too obscure for most people to understand, and they're inconclusive at best. You're going to see that what the arguments prove is that there must have been a first cause, and that's what we mean by God. And there must be a, something that 
is intelligent that designed the world, and that's what we mean by God. But the arguments themselves just tell us there must be a first cause, or there wouldn't be a universe, or there must be an intelligent designer. We have to fill in through other means, our religious experience, our religious beliefs. That's what we mean by God. The arguments in themselves are controversial. So what I'm saying is classical apologetics stress arguments for God's existence probably too much. Um, it's purely an intellectual exercise. I think it's useful, just like it's, we study anything, like music or poetry. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just that it's so far removed from people's faith sometimes um, that it seems to be too abstract. So there's a second kind of apologetics called evidentialist. Evidence. Evidentialist or evidentialism. People like C.S. Lewis, for instance, if you know some of these major names. and If you're a Christian evidentialist apologetic, you're trying to justify Christian beliefs, you start with the biblical evidence, the evidence from the Bible, especially the miracles. That's, that's what they do. These people do apologetics without even trying to prove God exists rationally. They simply say, if the biblical miracles, especially the resurrection of Jesus, which is the main miracle, but all kinds of miracles, nature miracles, hearing, healing miracles, the miracle of fulfilled prophecies. Jesus fulfilled about 345 prophecies. The odds against that are about a trillion billion to one that any human being could fulfill 345 prophecies written a thousand years before he was born in some cases. So that's kind of a miracle, as is the resurrection, as are the healing miracles. Now what the evidentialists say is, if you can show that, that, that there's evidence that these miracles did occur, that the prophecies were fulfilled, that, that, that's evidence that there's a God behind it. So you get to God's existence by going through the Bible, looking at the evidence that's there, the historical, the scientific, the archaeological evidence, all the evidence that's available, the text condition, who wrote them, how they wrote them, whether they memorized it, whether they're accurate, whether the translations were changed, all of that is evidential historical evidence. And if you find that it makes a pretty tight case, that's evidence that there's a God behind it all. Because, like I say, Jesus, the resurrection, um, human beings can't, can't be resurrected. So it's a miracle if it happens. So they think that's the way to get to God, to, to show that there's a God, to justify belief in God. Um, now, that's only part one of the evidentialists. Um, the second thing they do is to refute or answer all of the criticisms of their position. You're going to see, for instance, when we get to the theory, the belief that Jesus rose from the dead, that there are about 15 arguments against that. Now, if you want to hold this as evidence that there's a God, that Jesus rose from the dead, you have to be aware of all of those arguments against it and answer those arguments. Like, Jesus didn't really die on the cross is one of the arguments. Jesus just fainted. Or the disciples stole the body. Jesus, the one that Jesus just fainted on the cross, I mean, you just have to have seen Mel Gibson's passion, um, the passion of Christ. I mean, no one survived on the cross. And even if Jesus did survive this torturous, brutal, you know, beating, uh, you know, uh, most of them died before they even got to the cross. The Romans were that sadistic. But I mean, no one survived. It, it, you suffocate within three hours normally. It's just that bad. Even if he did, can you imagine this battered and bruised, you know, bruised body, you know, pushing away a five-ton stone and telling everybody I've risen from the dead? 
Like it, it, it doesn't work. So if you refute the criticisms, that's what evidentialists do. They say, we're going to show that God exists with biblical evidence that we believe is valid, but we're going to show that it's valid. We're going to give you arguments for it, that miracles can happen. We'll see that next week. Only a naturalistic worldview holds you back from that belief. Miracles can happen, and Jesus must have done these things because the arguments against it don't make any terrific sense. Quite frankly, you just weigh the evidence. So, just in sum, there's these two. Classical justification, first of all, tries to prove God exists, a very neutral thing, and then it tries to look at the biblical evidence and and give arguments for it. But the evidentialists start with the biblical evidence, with the miracles, and get to God that way, and then they refute arguments against their case, which is a good way to argue. You know that, right? I've mentioned it before. When you're writing an essay for somebody, and and it's an argument essay, you, you, you say, here's why I believe A, Here's my evidence for A. And then you say, here are the criticisms of my, of my point, and here is my refutation of the criticisms. You have to be aware of what the criticisms of your point are and refute them. Argue against them or else. What good is your evidence? Your evidence is interesting, but maybe somebody else has better evidence. You have to look at their evidence and refute it. So that's exactly what evidentialists do. Now, one more. Um, I don't want to confuse, but I'd I'd be amiss if I didn't mention this. There actually is, despite everything we've done in this class, and the the main thesis has been, we can't be faithists. We can't just sit and say, I believe such and such because it feels right, it feels good, I've always believed it, what's the problem? I don't need to study, I don't need to think about it, I just believe it. That's faithism. There actually is a way of doing apologetics that's based on faith. Um, this is what most, if this were a whole group of Christians, for instance, like every, like if it were a church basement or a church Sunday afternoon, and we all wanted to just talk about the common belief that we had, I could probably do a faith-based apologetics. I could assume what the faith-based, let's, let's just call it faithist, although there are faithists who say that religious belief is irrational, and I don't want to support them, I want to say that if you start with faith, if you presuppose something is true, and that's what most of us do, we just basically have a worldview, and we say, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm a Scientologist, I just have faith that it's true. Well, then what you have to do is you have to argue that this is a coherent, rational belief based on that faith. You don't have to prove it's valid. You just have to show that the criticisms of it don't hold water. Like if I'm picking on John Travolta saying, I don't believe you were born in Saturn. I just don't believe that you people came over from Saturn after you were booted out and became Thebans on Earth. And I just, give me some evidence. I'm trying to refute this by saying, I just find it incredible. What's your evidence? See, faith-based starts with saying, No one's going to believe the evidence anyway, so why don't we just assume what we believe? Let's just say like we're all the same belief here. We'll just assume it's true, and then let's see what kind of consequences follows. What will happen is we believe that God's loving, and we'll look around and we'll see there's lots of love in the world, and we believe that God is just and holy, and God's given us free will, and we see a lot of sin and evil and disgusting stuff in the world, but we know that God allows that for good reason. Like, everything seems to fall into place if we assume our belief. There's nothing wrong with that. 
That what's wrong with faithism, though, is that it completely denigrates or ignores any rational understanding of, uh, of any use of reason in apologetics. It's, it's a, you know what it is? It's, it's existentialism gone mad. This, this is a culture where the last 50 years has been existentialist, which means that people aren't concerned about reason and history and science and, and logic. What people are concerned about in the, in the existentialist culture is what we feel. Well, now, if you're an atheist existentialist, what they did, Sartre, Camus, these famous people, uh, you probably know their names, these French playwrights and novelists and whatever, Sartre and Camus were, were these, these French existentialists who said, we don't believe in God, and, and we know that the world is caused by physics and chemistry, and we really have nothing we can do about it. I mean, our lives are determined by, by, by forces beyond our control. It's a meaningless world. But there's one thing they can't take away from us, and that's our inner free will to choose to make something of our lives. And, and, and even though it's all meaningless and it's an illusion, you can join a club. You can find something that gives you meaning. Now, the Christian existentialists are faithists, and what, what they've been doing to the church for the last 50 years is pretty much destroy it. Um, they've discredited it a lot. What they've done is to say, science doesn't like miracles. It's very hard to rationally compete with the philosophers. So what we're going to do is we're going to say, hey, we don't have to defend God with miracles. We don't have to defend the Bible that's historically valid. We don't have to defend anything. All we have to do is say, hey, I believe in God. And when I read the Bible or hear the Bible, I, I have an existential encounter. I feel the truth of it all. Now, that's our culture. What that's done for the liberal churches who have become existentialists, you walk into those churches and you ask the priests or the ministers in charge, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Um, not really. Do you believe that Jesus had a virgin birth? Mm, not really. Did Jesus perform miracles? Oh, no, 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 no. That, 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 they must be symbolic because science says you can't have miracles. What they've done is to give everything away. They've basically given it all away because they can't compete, they think, with science and reason and logic. They don't think they can defend their faith. So these faithists, who are basically called existentialists, say it doesn't matter what science and reason and history, it doesn't matter if anything happened at all. All that matters is that on Easter Sunday, I believe Jesus rose from the dead in my heart. Now this is a pretty pitiful faith in my, in my estimation because quite frankly, if you really believe that, that nothing really happened, the miracles didn't occur, the Bible is inaccurate, it's all just a story, on and on and on. This is, this is the dominant form of Christianity in this culture. This is why 5% of the people actually believe what they should believe. Most of them have been sucked into existentialism, which tells them that the only thing that matters is your faith. Now, quite frankly, if you really believe that, that all this is just a story, but I have such faith in it, what good is it? In the long run, you'll, you're probably rushing to have faith in something that's a little more exciting, that maybe it has some shred of proof that it actually happened. I'm not recommending the faithist approach. And if this were a church where people wanted to assume that approach, I'd be telling them the same thing, that faithism gives away the baby. It throws out the bathwater and the baby's gone too. The truth of the thing. Christianity, like Islam, is an historical religion. It, it, it makes historical claims. Either they happened or they didn't. And if we don't even investigate them, even, you know, I mean, what's the point of it all? Why are we giving it all away? 
This culture says you can't do history. It's all made up. It's all biased. It's all, it's, it's beyond our comprehension. We have texts by St. Paul, you know, one of the early writers in the New Testament from about, you know, the, the, the man, Jesus died, let's say, in 30 AD, and Paul was, 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 was already starting to write his letters and form his theology about 32, like two years later. It doesn't come centuries later. There, there's, there's a lot of historical eyewitness accounts going on that we just ignore the minute we become an existentialist. This culture is existentialist. It doesn't like to justify its belief. It does faithist apologetics by saying, if I believe it, it's true. And I don't care if the evidence is against it. I don't care about evidence. That's what's wrong with faithism. So I am recommending that we do classical apologetics, that we look for arguments, use our minds, use our reason, and we do evidential apologetics. We look for historical, scientific, archaeological evidence, all kinds of things. See, if you don't do that, you're going to find critics who say, I bet you Jesus never lived. That's one of the big ones. That's why, well, wait a minute. What do you mean he never lived? Well, you'll hear that on the web all the time, and even legitimate scholars will say that. All you have to do is go back to the evidence, the historical evidence, and you'll see that it's not just the Bible that says he lived and did all of these things, but there are enemies, the Jews and the Romans, who talk about Jesus as living. Like, I mean, it's very easy to refute these wild claims, but the minute we disregard the evidence, then it's just a free-for-all, and people start saying the most outrageous things. Oh, there are no such things as crucifixions anyway in the Roman Empire. That's just nonsense. They probably happened way after Jesus was... Well, we found people in the first century who had been crucified about the same time as Jesus, and it's exactly the way the Bible describes crucifixion. Nails to the wrists and nails to the feet. And, and, and broken, broken legs so that they'll suffocate and not be able to push themselves back up on the cross. And... Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us for the next episode as the journey of justifying beliefs continues.